0: hello and welcome to a new episode of impressions of america i'm simon and with me as always is toby hi toby hi simon and for this episode we are joined by author and historian doug Rosenau to look at the new left in america Doug is Professor of History at the University of Oslo. He is the author of The Politics of Authenticity, Liberalism, Christianity, and the New Left, Visions of Progress, The Left Liberal Tradition in America, and The Regan-era History of the 1980s. Doug, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, you're most welcome, and uh, thanks for having me. It's great to talk with you.
0: Um, first question, Doug. Um, Could you set the scene by giving our audience an introduction to the New Left and that time period in general, and could you tell us uh, perhaps a bit about, uh, tell us a little bit about your your work and the the books that perhaps covered that, uh, that time period?
1: Sure. The New Left is a, or it was, a political movement, and I would say also a social movement. In the United States, although it existed in other countries as well my expertise or my research is about the American New Left or the New Left in the United States, although it was a a kind of international or transnational movement as well. It was very closely associated with the era of the 1960s and basically was the main expression of political radicalism, the political left on the part of uh, highly educated, university-educated, mostly white, uh, young Americans. Uh, There were a lot of other movements, social and political movements, and expressions of dissent and critical voices in the United States as in other countries in the 1960s. And in a few minutes perhaps we can talk about how these different expressions of dissent and rebellion related to each other. But the New Left was basically uh, a a, a catch-all term for the appearance of a new uh, very radical movement highly critical of the united states within the united states itself and specifically among white university educated americans at that time now the very name new left tells you something which is that the people who associated themselves with it wished to distinguish themselves from left-wing movements that had come earlier. In other words, with what people came to call the old left, and uh, it's an obvious question, I think, and an important question, how the old left and the new left differed from each other. Uh, They differed in a lot of ways, uh, which I can go into if you wish, but fundamentally the two major concerns of the new left in the United States were, to put it simply, uh, white supremacy, number one, and American empire, number two. And these have really been the two issues that have shaped, that have structured, the whole course of the political left in the United States from the 1960s virtually until today, or almost entirely uh, until at least very recently. So for about 50 or 60 years, the major concerns of the new left, which were shared by others in the 1960s, white supremacy and American empire, those were the uh, the driving concerns of this movement. There were a lot of other distinctive features to it, uh, and we can go into detail about that a- as you wish. Uh, but uh, the struggle against uh, racism in the United States, uh, the perception that the United States was uh, not just a racist society, but a society uh, that was really structured around white supremacy uh, and the need to do something about that, Number one was uh, a formative concern for the new left, and number two, uh, the question of U.S. power in the world and the need to challenge that. And uh, as people in this movement thought, the need to be highly critical of it in the era of the Cuban Revolution and the U.S. war in Vietnam, Uh, these were the most important discrete political concerns of this movement. There were other characteristics of the movement as well, which we can discuss, um, but these were their basic concerns from start to finish, despite all of the changes they went through. And the movement really kind of broke up as a coherent political and social movement, certainly by
2: 1975. Hmm. Could you please um, go through your uh, idea of the New Left as sort of a Sort of a, uh, a political movement who put authenticity as its most yeah. important.
1: Yes, I mean, Hammond. yeah, I, this gets into first of all the distinction between the old left and the new, the new left, and, and second, it gets into just this is sort of autobiographical, the nature of the the research that I did on this movement, which you know now was was some time ago, but. Uh, so I'm, I'm dimly remembering it from my youth. Uh, I, I, what what I discovered when researching uh, the young people who were involved in this movement in the 1960s was that a lot of their uh, their rhetoric, their discussion, seemed to be structured around ideas about being real, being authentic. These were the terms that they often used. Uh, and what I discovered was that this had th- these concepts had particular, uh, pretty specific meanings uh, and that this idea of realness or authenticity was something that they uh, contrasted with alienation, artifice, uh, role playing. Uh, They did not want to be, as one of my interview subjects put it, they did not want to be the game players of American society. Uh, They wanted to be true to themselves. They wanted to fulfill their potential as human beings become the best and fullest human beings they could be. And a lot of this kind of discussion does not seem intrinsically political or politically radical, necessarily. It's the same kind of conversation and um, rhetoric that appeared at that same time in uh, the youth counterculture, the hippie movement, the human potential movement in the 1970s. And to some people at the time, Uh, this really discredited the new left as a serious political movement. Why would they be concerned with these questions of personal authenticity, uh, fulfillment being real? This didn't seem political to a lot of people, particularly to a lot of older people, uh, but even to some younger people. And basically, I think it is the case that this political movement was one among many expressions during that era of youthful alienation from uh, a very wealthy consumerist, imperial, and racist society. Uh, There were other manifestations that were not overtly political, and you could say not political at all, that shared some of their concerns about authenticity. But in the case of young people who are involved in the new left, they became politically radicalized, but they often framed and understood their political actions as efforts to be uh, the fullest and most real human beings, that they could be efforts to be their true selves, uh, and they saw a lot of earlier left wing movements as compromised—not just by the sort of mundane political compromises with power that we're familiar with, but also with compromised by, um, uh, artifice, game playing, role playing, and 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 a lack of authenticity.
2: Mm. How would you? Con- or how would you distinguish that from, say, Arthur Schlesinger and sort of other liberals um, feeling that the 1950s saw too much conformity, and also, uh, and they uh, and they prescribe sort of a qualitative liberalism to free people from
1: the sort of conformity yeah. that they also saw in American life. Yeah, that's a really good connection, and uh, I think that in retrospect, it seems almost as if. The things that Schlesinger and others were talking about, the society of conformity in the 1950s. And Schlesinger really uh, was very explicit in offering what he thought was a kind of existentialist liberalism. Mm-hmm. And, what talk- and what I'm talking about is a kind of existentialist radicalism. Okay. Because uh, you
2: also it. see this in, in – um, obviously Kenneth Galbraith was an economist, but he also looked at the culture and, and- – saw, you know, a need for some sort of, like, existential uplift. Right. But, but you distinguish it as being radical as opposed to... Right.
1: That That's right. I mean, in retrospect, I mean, if you look at it up close, people in the New Left hated people like uh, Schlesinger and Galbraith, right? Mm. Because they saw them as cold warriors, as people who had, um, who were, you know, uh, intellectual uh, foot soldiers for American empire. And corporate liberalism, as the New Left called it, corporate liberalism was a term the New Left invented. Uh, to, to describe how uh, morally bankrupt they, they saw uh, establishment liberalism uh, mm-hmm. as you know being. But the fact is, in, if you take the view from 30,000 feet, it, it seems as if the kind of qualitative liberalism that Galbraith and Schlesinger were talking about was kind of a, a, kind of a, almost like a gateway drug, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the hard stuff that the new left was offering, basically, you know people who were i don't know if your listeners all will understand what qualitative liberalism was the mm-hmm. idea voiced by a lot of social critics in the 1950s that in a society that had become you know basically pretty wealthy the United States in the 1950s and 60s was the wealthiest most powerful society the world had ever seen now there were still plenty of people who were poor in the United States and there were people who were not poor but really didn't have very much um, nonetheless it was still the wealthiest society ever and the Uh, The industrial working class in the United States enjoyed a higher standard of living and more affluence than their counterparts ever had in any other society. Uh, So there were some uh, political liberals in the 50s, uh, like the people you name, who said, you know, we need to try to go beyond just um, giving people more stuff. Mm-hmm. You know the new frontier, as they might have said, because they were yeah. Also this is
2: a post uh, scarcity critique that both scarcity about. exactly yeah, and
1: yeah. people like this said we have to our new agenda has to be bringing people meaningful life, maybe meaningful leisure, uh, not just <laughs> more and more stuff. Now the the young radicals in the New life, they believed that too, and and their form of radicalism was very much a post scarcity radicalism. They thought American society had moved beyond the challenge of scarcity. Uh, and but they, they went much further. They said the society that's creating all of this stuff, uh, consumer goods and consumer needs, um, that society is crap. Um, I mean, to put it, sorry, crudely. And we need to scrap it. You know, you know, people in the New Left didn't say this right away in the early 60s, but by the late 60s, they were saying this quite commonly. Um In the early 60s, when people in Students for a Democratic Society, which is the major new left organization, first got going, they actually had hopes that they and people like the qualitative liberals, at least some of them, might form a new sort of political uh, alliance uh, that would drag the Democratic Party to the left uh, and would make it a a very openly pro-civil rights and social democratic party. So um, they had that kind of what they called a realignment strategy, and they still had the kind of Um, economically oriented, social democratic uh, vision that was consistent with the older uh, left, the previous left of the 1930s, 40s and 50s. Um, But in the new left, they pretty quickly got disillusioned uh, with the possibility of that kind of an alliance with any mainstream liberals. And it was because I think of the issues of white supremacy, uh, civil rights, as people called it commonly at that time, and the issue of American empire. Uh, and, and these two issues helped to alienate uh, white radicals as they did militant and radical African-American youth in the United States. Uh, and, and by the late 60s, people in the new left, as their counterparts in the counterculture, were saying basically uh, this society that just creates more and more stuff pollutes the earth, um, doesn't bring us personal satisfaction and feelings of authenticity. We need to go in a wholly new direction. Yeah, we need to make a really sharp break.
2: It's interesting that you say that they disagreed with the uh, the traditional left or, or the or tra- more traditional liberals on the point of civil rights. Don't you think that the new left was with the sort of the liberals on sort of the early civil rights stuff, the stuff in the
1: 1950s and then the Lyndon Johnson legislation? Uh, I think by the time the Major Lyndon Johnson legislation happened in 1964 and 1965, the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, mm-hmm. people in the new left were already becoming um, more radicalized. They were at that very time shifting to the left. And, and it, this was partly because they sympathized with people in the black movement uh, like the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party who thought that this was not enough. Um, mm-hmm even though they, appreciate, they, they they recognized these as historic uh, breakthroughs, but they, they wanted to see a wholesale transformation of American society that would really achieve social and economic inclusion and political inclusion for African Americans, uh, rather than simply removing the grossest regional manifestations of, of legalized white supremacy in the American South which was the focus of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, I certainly think that people in the new left as in the black movement welcomed this legislation, but by that time they were already shifting uh, to the left. I say that they were post-scarcity radicals and they were, but they understood that there were sectors of American society that remained deprived and underprivileged, most of all um, African-Americans, people of color more generally, but most of all African-Americans. And they didn't think the, the legislation of the mid-60s was going to address uh, the, anything like the full scope uh, of white supremacy as it existed in the United States.
2: How far did you, do you think this sort of grew out of a particular attachment that the new left had to African-American culture as an authentic culture?
1: Well, that's a very good question. I think that politically, uh, white people in the New Left uh, took a lot of their cues from the Black movement, especially in the first half of the 1960s. Um, They were were not that involved institutionally, the New Left, say Students for a Democratic Society, in civil rights struggles, but a lot of the individuals who were involved in the New Left had been as individuals very much involved in civil rights struggles in different localities in the United States, and they were shaped by this. I mean, this was the, I think, the fundamental, uh, most basic formative um, political experience they had mm-hmm. uh, observing and in many cases participating in civil rights struggles uh, in, in in the early 60s. Uh, this, this alienated them from uh, American politics, and the american power structure in many ways and then the vietnam war uh really just just blew that in sky high you know that, that whole you know the the uh, accelerating uh alienation from the the political system it just uh it it, it just skyrocketed uh, with the escalation of the war so it was kind of a one-two punch uh the civil rights movement uh, despair over the prospects of really changing American race relations and white supremacy, and then the escalation of the Vietnam War. To to refer to your to get to your question about uh, whether white people perceived African American culture as particularly authentic, I, I I don't know, you know that that has been a tendency in white American culture for a long time.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and the white youth uh, of the baby boom generation were certainly um, involved in that culturally. Whether this specifically is what laid the groundwork for uh, young white radicals' um, interest in uh, the African-American movement and the way that they look to the African-American movement some ways for their, their cues, uh, I'm not so sure about that. But um, But certainly there was a, a strong feeling among New Left Radicals that people involved in the youth wing of the black movement, like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, were exemplars of personal authenticity involved in politics and manifesting itself in politics. Personal commitment uh, that seemed pure. Uh, And this uh, took on its most distinct uh, and clearest embodiment In the political method of direct action, uh, which was associated with the phrase "putting your body on the line," Uh, the the whole direct action tradition was extremely important for the new left.
2: Right. So, is this the idea that um, sort of white liberals were not
1: putting their body on the line, like
2: the African Americans?
1: No doubt, but not just white liberals. I mean, lots. I mean, you you should understand. Oh, it was
2: it was this kind of thing, sort of staying out of the fray pervasive in uh, all of American culture in the
1: New I, I think there was a, the people in the New Left believed that liberals certainly were, were manipulators who wanted power and uh, not rulers of society, not people who were taking personal risk to try to change society. That's not how they understood liberalism at, uh-huh. at that time. Uh, but also I think that people in the New Left thought that the members of the old left, the labor and communist based left, of the 1930s and 40s, uh, had, they didn't see them as having been um, uh, exemplars of uh, d- direct action. They saw them as too involved with bureaucratic systems of control. And you should understand that this was all a caricature, right? Because of course, the, the labor movement of the 30s and 40s was in many cases highly militant and you know, militant labor action is a form of direct action, mm-hmm. often at the point of production. Uh, but nonetheless, the direct action tradition that animated the new left came from a different place and it, and it took on a different aspect. And the, the alternative source uh, of the direct action tradition that really inspired uh, 60s radicals was uh, radical nonviolence, militant pacifism. Uh, which started in the United States really during the World War I era. And it was that alternative uh, genealogy that ended up moving through uh, nonviolence, uh, moving through uh, the civil rights movement uh, and and anti-nuclear protest in the 1950s and early 60s, ended up having a very strong impact. You can, on the new left in the 60s, you can you can see this impact clearly if you make a comparison to other countries. The term new left arose, action was first used in, in Britain and France in mm-hmm. the 50s. Um, basically an expression of disillusionment with the Soviet Union uh, and, among many people who, young people who were radical, including people who were in the communist movement. Uh, so in, in countries like Britain and France and some others, When a new left arose in the late 50s and early 60s, former communists played a very important role. Well, in the United States, former communists played a very minor role in the formation of the new left. Mm -hmm. The sources and the genealogy of their rebellion were were different. It was a different thread of radicalism and dissent in American life uh, that, again, starts with Uh, radical nonviolence and protest against war during World War I and then moves through the nonviolent sector of the African-American movement into civil rights and and anti-nuclear protest in the post-war period. Uh, And so the direct action uh, tradition that reached the young radicals of the 60s, the new left, was uh, very much against empire and against the Cold War and it was very much a whole ethos, a moral ethos of action, direct action, rather than simply a tactic. Uh, And and even when the new left in the late 60s had given up its pacifism and its commitment to nonviolence, the direct action ethos, which previously had been attached to nonviolence, remained. So the style is sort of
2: Gandhi-esque and there's direct action. Did this mean that the um, the primary source of radicalism was African-Americans or did the new left perceive other groups, including themselves, as the primary source of, of radicalism, even though um, the white working
1: class was no longer the, the yeah. vector? Yeah, uh, I would say that as far as specific uh, inspirations went, uh, the African-American movement was the… Because per- there
2: is a split. In the in the mid '60s, then, mm. with with Black Power and yeah. uh, trying to have separate forms of activism.
1: That that's correct, and, and people in the New Lives basically assented to that, uh, and they embraced the message from the African American movement in, uh, in the mid-1960s, which was to white radicals: Why don't you go organize in white America? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and in my view, that is what the white radicals of the new left in their own way actually tried to do. Uh, It didn't necessarily look the way some people might have thought it would look, but that's what they did. They focused on university communities, uh, on uh, white university educated youth, not just uh, college students, but people who uh, who were recent college graduates, especially by the late 60s and early 70s, and and took root – in local communities often uh, attached to major universities and university towns around the United States. So they, they basically did organize in their own social constituency, which was you know, consistent with the black power idea, which is that, you know, black activists should act about, uh, should, should organize African-Americans, whites should organize whites.
2: So, I, I want to move on to the New Left's association with the Democratic Party, because as we know, sort of in the post Watergate era, um, different states in the South, the, the sort of democratic, um, sort of, I would say, um, connection starts to die out. So, could you just do, do you feel that the New Left? played a role in the alienation from the Democratic Party by uh people in the south uh,
1: I, I, no I wouldn't say that really I mean the new left did have a presence in the south although it wasn't its strongest region but it was present because around- the, the new left
2: did have uh sort of I mean because they have a critique of American society and they did have some impact on I say I would say the uh, image of the McGovern campaign right in
1: well, I make a couple of points briefly. I understand what you're saying, mm. but the the main um, the main factors that alienated the white South from the Democratic Party after mid uh, after 1965 were actually the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting
2: Rights Act of 1965. Ah, okay, you
1: know, yeah. I got you. Famous quotation from Lyndon Johnson with the Voting Rights Act, you know, we've given away the South for a generation, turned out to be multiple generations.
3: <laughs>
1: everybody uh, concurs that he was exactly right in his mm-hmm. prediction. So the white South didn't need the new left to alienate them from the Democratic Party. Um, now." about the McGovern campaign, that's really interesting. Uh, that, of course, was 1972. And there are some people who, who define the New Life broadly enough that it can include the sort of anti-imperial, anti-war liberals who mm-hmm. supported George McGovern mm-hmm. in 1972. And, of course, there is a continuum. Uh, and I definitely think that the 1970s started to see some rapprochement between some people in the New Left and some people who were liberal Democrats. In the later years of the U.S. war in Vietnam,
3: mm-hmm.
1: fundamentally, uh, I don't see the McGovern campaign as part of the New Left, though. So well,
2: that, that is that is interesting the, because I mean, in your in your book, there is uh, sort of a section where you have okay, some people in the New Left do sort of get you know, there's a few getting clean for. Gene McCarthy, but right. I feel like they, they dodged the 68 election purposely mm. because they felt alienated from the political process. Yeah, But as I've always felt, or it's always been and I think maybe in the, the popular mind that the McGovern campaign was linked to the new left in, so, in some ways.
1: Well, you know, there have been a number of different critiques of the McGovern campaign. And one mm-hmm. is that they were um, too uh, attuned to what people now call identity politics. Mm-hmm. that they this, this was actually kind of the initial critique of them that was powerful within the Democratic Party that they had thrown over the old city bosses and, and Democratic Party mach- machines and some of the white labor people uh, and replaced them with um, African-American and feminist activists. Uh, exactly, who, yeah, it yeah. Turned yeah. Out you didn't have, have a
2: shift from the George Meany types to yeah. the, yeah.
1: <laughs> to jesse jackson and shirley chisholm yeah yeah yeah, exactly yeah yeah that that's that's a little different from saying that they were part of the new left which some people have already have also said I, I think that there was a difference between 1968 and 72 and that was obviously four years of richard nixon as president four more years of the u.s war in vietnam so there were some people who i think were in the new left who were more ready to support Uh, Especially an anti-war candidate like McGovern in 72, who also expressed some uh, support for certain social democratic measures like guaranteed income. Um, But uh, I think what was happening by 72, this was sort of the last stage of the new left's existence Mm -hmm. as a a coherent movement. And basically it was fragmenting and there were different pieces of the movement that were going in different directions. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some people were very involved. In, in organizing in factories as part of what some people called a new communist movement. Some people were um, uh, really just committed to their local communities. Uh, some people had gone underground and had gotten engaged in, um, in, in violence. Uh, that was a very small number, but they got a lot of attention. But there were also people who by 72 were uh, had reconciled themselves to some kind of a pragmatic course within uh, American Politics and that that tendency grew with time. So um, there were there were some people in the New Left who probably supported George McGovern. But uh, you know, uh, to the extent that McGovern really did alienate um, the you know some white Americans from the Democratic Party and from liberalism more than they already were, mm-hmm. I don't I don't really think it was because um, uh, the New Left. Uh, involvement or you know partial support for for his campaign if that existed I think it was a continuation of the alienation that was uh, driven by the liberal agenda itself uh, as that had manifested uh, starting in the mid 60s
2: so you, you don't sort of buy into the theory of the sort of you know the 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 uh, urban flight and uh, you know weathermen, you know things that are captured, and I think a lot of uh, scare stories and sort of political campaigns by people like Nixon and uh, Reagan. You know the idea of a silent majority against this sort of
1: uh, I don't know the, the new left uh, radicalism potentially. Yeah. Well, of some people might tell you different, but my view is that. The the mass support that political figures like Reagan and Nixon got mm-hmm. by the sixties and early seventies uh, was the result of um, widespread white American alienation from Great Society liberalism,
3: mm-hmm.
1: not fear not fear of New Left insurrectionism. Um, you know that that was the stories about the Weathermen, uh, what Nixon called bums blowing up the campuses. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was you know red meat for some of their right- wing supporters, but I don't think it's what got them into office. I think it was it was um, conflict over uh, actually the liberal agenda that had the far-reaching consequences. You know, to me, the new left is significant, not because it, it was a movement that had a big impact on American society or had big political consequences. Uh, I think it's it's important as a reflection of uh, certain tendencies in American society, both politically and culturally at that time, particularly among certain segments of American society at its height of power. Uh, Not because it it ended up having a big consequence. I think people in the movement uh, ended up being highly disappointed that they didn't uh, have a bigger impact than they had on American society. Okay,
2: cool. I think now we would move on to um, just we'll go back to the counterculture because I do want to uh, read something from your book that I found quite interesting. Um, Ken Kinsey the the author of the one who Flew over the cookies nest and the lead, one of the leaders of the you know the freaks and the merry pranksters he said that he said that um, at, at a anti-war uh, sort of gathering in Berkeley in 65 that, he wasn't very political, and he considered um, sort of the political movements in the New Left to be squares. Mm-hmm. How so? How connected were were these two? I mean, obviously, the New New Left um, sort of engaged in a lot of the counterculture, but is the counterculture uh, sort of a New Left phenomenon, or is it sort of a broader phenomenon with Yes. Because I, I, I think of um, Tom Wolfe's interventions with uh, Ken Kinsey and them writing things like uh, a vote for Goldwater is a vote for fun, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I could say a lot about Ken Kesey. Um, and I guess I'll say a little bit, but, um, you know, fundamentally, I think that the, the the counterculture in the New Left were sort of twins who were estranged from each other. hmm um, if you look sort of, if you get deep into the sources and look at what people who were uh, New Left radicals in the late 60s were saying, they were fit to be tied with the counterculture, uh, and they 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 couldn't understand why. People who were socially like them, came from the same origins they did, fit the same social profile, basically white middle class university educated youth who were alienated from American culture, weren't going to join with them in political radicalism. Instead, wanted to just escape society and drop out. I mean, that's how radicals in the new left saw it. Uh, And um, they, you know, this whole um, there was a a tremendous tension uh, between uh, the hippies or the freaks, as, as people in the counterculture were often called, and the politicos of the new left um, who wanted to, who thought that maybe they should have been able to recruit some of these freaks, but who really couldn't do that because the freaks thought politics was just nonsense. You know, They thought it was, again, more game playing, right? They thought the people in the new left who wanted to be authentic weren't being authentic because they were engaged in politics, which was just garbage. Um, so you know there was there was tremendous um antagonism and f- mutual frustration across this line but from the outside it, it seems as that the two movements both were different responses to uh, a, a common perception of the problem with american society in the 1960s and, and common uh, aspiration for a life of, of authenticity
3: mm-hmm.
1: um now so I don't think the New Left was part of the counterculture. I think the New Left tried to sort of create a new kind of counterculture that would be politically engaged and, and, and uh, a force for political opposition and, and, and social change. Uh, so, but that was sort of their own effort, which was somewhat, somewhat successful, but still was, it, it, it was not as big as the, the, the hippie counterculture or the freak counterculture, which was, uh, which was large and, but, you know, the, the new left felt that they had to respond to that. You know, they couldn't just be square politicos, as Kesey called them. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Kesey said what he said at this Vietnam Day committee rally. And he said, vote for Goldwater is a vote for fun, not just because he wanted to, like, confuse people and piss them off, which he probably did. But I also think Kesey was not part of the left. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I see Ken Kesey as a kind of right-wing anarchist, to be honest. Um, if you read um, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe, you see that not only was he not sympathetic to the anti-war movement, but that he was sort of uh, engaged frequently in his kind of casual racism, uh, sometimes not so casual, sometimes, you know, very conscious and intentional. Um, and, you know, Kesey's other work, his, his novel, sometimes a great notion is this it's like it could have been written by Ayn Rand I mean it, mm-hmm. it, it, you know it's an indictment of the labor movement as as um, uh, uh, some force that's trying to hold down the you know uber mention of, of the world um, you know so I, I think Kesey if he had any politics was um, very much leaned to the right but but was was kind of an anarchist who who didn't really want to engage in in political um activism. The only reason this is really important is that it, or are revealing it, is that um, uh, people didn't even notice this about Kesi because it, he was involved in uh, so many of the things in a pioneering way uh, that were characteristic of the late 60s counterculture uh, and, and became a representative of it. He was able to do so because uh, the aspirations for authenticity, with ex- the the um, interest in experimental living and, and drug use, uh, communal living, uh, and, and turning your back on straight society. These things were so widespread among uh, among youth in America after a certain point that uh, that what your politics were uh, didn't matter that much in, in certain uh, in, in certain environments and the the counterculture could accommodate people of uh, widely differing political views uh-huh.
2: yeah, because I mean existentialism doesn't intuitively indicate that you would have some sort of political
1: view point no, and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily tend to the political left. I mean uh-huh. there, there were some people for whom it did, but that was that was a contingent relationship, I guess you would say not a necessary relationship. Hmm. Yeah, fabulous. So now,
2: this is something that was—I don't know—it was quite. Another um, counterintuitive about your book was the 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 Christianity's involvement in leading people, especially within the uh, UT, the University of Texas example, towards these kinds of political actions, first in civil rights, and then towards even sort of more secular existential views. Yeah.
1: mm mm-hmm. mhm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know what? This is something that um, some people, I, you know, had some criticism over this, um, and I tried to be careful not to say that this invo- this uh, this these forms of Christianity, uh, Christian existentialism. I, I wasn't trying to say that they caused the new left, where mm-hmm. it's it's its source. But what I what I found was that. Because in
2: the book, it seems like people like C. Wright Mills could yeah. be replaced with people like Tillich, you know? Yeah, yeah.
1: And yeah. Bonhoeffer, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. I mean, it was an alternative genealogy and set of, of not exactly influence, influences, but precursors. Um, what, what I found was that the whole vocabulary of alienation versus authenticity that I saw the sources from the new left just saturated with, you know, that vocabulary had been sort of pioneered worked out and first imported and brought to university students um, in in the the realm of uh christianity uh and theological discussion in the 1950s this was this is what i found through my research just into one local environment Uh, I think that based on conversations I've had and reading I've done that those that genealogy probably could be reproduced in a lot of other places around the United States, but certainly the one place in Austin, Texas um, that I investigated, which became a major center of youth radicalism in the 60s. So I think it was just I think it's important to to see the 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 genealogy and the progression of conversations if you want to understand how what seemed to a lot of Americans like a really strange discourse or conversation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for political radicals to be having in the in the 1960s, where that might have come from.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but could you explain sort of even maybe just a little bit on the theology of um, sort of like people like Tillich, like, um, so being real, yeah, was um finding god or trying to get closer to a uh, christian reading of um sort of society is it was there a feeling that yes. americans had left um their their religion in this world
1: well, i mean two, two, because it, it
2: does it does seem like a period of high sort of religious attendance
1: it was and it was even more broadly a period of high engagement with questions of religion mm. even among people who had lost their faith you know um and to a lot of people who are more traditional christian believers the whole conversation around christian existentialism whether you're talking about paul tillich or or uh, john a.t robinson who wrote a book in the early 60s called honest to god which was sort of a a, a very important uh, popularization of Uh, a lot of um, sort of uh, cutting-edge theological ideas from recent times. Uh, To more traditional or orthodox Christian believers, this seemed like not very religious, (laughs) kind of, Uh you know, um, religion with God taken out. Uh, And as a matter of fact, in the early 1960s, uh, it was very common for people to talk about the so-called death of God. So so it, it was a way for people to talk about having ultimate concern and what
2: the death of God in a sort of like a a Nietzschean vein sense that, you know, people are no longer pulling into religion for, you know, a sense of uh, meaning in life and and things like that or no, I don't I don't really mean that it was more in the uh,
1: sense of, of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who became a hero. To several generations of, of political radicals, mm-hmm. a German theologian who was involved in in plot to kill Adolf Hitler uh, oh, yeah, in, yeah. In, the, in the 1940s, um, and, and he he offered the idea of a religionless Christianity, and he basically said we've got to learn to get along without relying on God on a day-to-day basis. But he yeah, pursued- I didn't
2: know Bonhoeffer was influential in in this area. Yeah, Could we just know him from his you know his adventures in
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think what I what I found is that he was actually kind of an underground. He was sort sort of like a cult hero uh, on American university campuses in the fifties, uh, and, and maybe even into the sixties. And I don't mean to say that people in the New Left in the sixties were reading Bonhoeffer,
3: uh-huh. although
1: I think some of them, no doubt, had. You know, but uh, I, I, I think he was just very much uh, expressive of. Uh, The the conversation about um, human potential, human realization, the importance of intense community, which became a very powerful theme in all of the youth radicalism of the 60s, both political and cultural. The importance of uh, human relationships in small groups as a way of establishing personal authenticity for the individual. Uh, He was very much part of the conversation uh, in the 1950s, among university students in the United States, uh, in which all those themes uh, were prominent, and, and and he did always, you know, carry the association of uh, political rebellion, right? Uh, action against the state, even when people didn't talk about that. If they talked about Bonhoeffer in any way, everybody understood that that association was was there. Fantastic. So.
2: How do you think? Because this the new left. I mean, it is. It does seem like um, a lot of the things they were saying were very much, you know, sort of against the dominant dominant culture. How do you think they were able to present their ideas, uh, sort of to the wider public, in in a sort of media sense? Because it, you would think that in the 60s, magazines that were not National Review where things like the Sen and the New Republic, these were organs or these were media sources that were dominated by liberals. You would think that mm-hmm. a lot of the television stations had liberals on them. How
1: would the New Left getting their ideas out in this period? Yeah, that's a good question. And today, I mean, it may be hard for some people to even imagine how they did it without, mm-hmm. you know, um, without Facebook or SMS, right? <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, people were people were pretty energetic uh, back in the day Mm -hmm. about communicating. They spent a lot of time putting together these very closely typed mimeographed, um, you know, newsletters that they produced. Uh, You know, by the mid 60s, there were underground newspapers uh, produced uh, in and around university campuses all over the United States. Uh, People were very uh, innovative. One way they communicated with each other was to be very often on the move. Uh, The most committed uh, activists of the 60s uh, were itinerant uh, in many cases uh, and they established their own networks uh, of communication, often with face-to-face contact, but also by letter writing and, as I say, you know, these do-it-yourself publications, which were, you know, seat of the pants uh, always.
2: And how were they uh, sort of perceived in the general media?
1: You could probably imagine.
2: <laughs> now, go on,
1: go on. <laughs> well, I mean, they were, you know, it didn't matter how clean cut they were. Uh, I think they were generally perceived as, you know, a bunch of long-haired men and short-haired women. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, today people, some young people and, in fact, some candidates for office in the United States call themselves Democratic Socialists. And uh, this is amazing to a lot of Americans who, as old as I am and older, because in the 60s, for people to say that they were um, uh, socialists, which they started to do at the very end of the 60s, mm. more, more people
2: more, were saying they were socialists in in the 60s in, within the the New Left, and you know, in the 50s and things like that. Right?
1: Yeah, and it, but really not till the late 60s people start to to talk about that a lot mm. it's because of the inhibition against doing so. It was so powerful um, in Cold War America, you know. Uh, so, uh, but but any anybody heard that somebody was left, left wing radical in the '60s, it really wasn't that long after the McCarthy period and the Red Scare, and that was immediately disqualifying um, in, in the eyes of, of of enormous numbers of Americans, most Americans, even people who may have sympathized with some of the themes and concerns that young people in the New Left had when they heard that they were left, that they had rejected the Democratic Party. It, it, this this you know even to liberals, um, let alone conservatives, meant that these people were just, you know, um, beyond the pale.
2: Mm. So, and you mentioned something interesting, that the people are now referring to themselves as uh, sort of social Democrats. With uh, people like uh, Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders, their critique seems to be rooted in Economics more than the sort of qualitative liberalism of the New Left. Do you think that's well,
1: a, that's because of the periods or? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's. you know, I mean, uh, you know people on the left today intend uh, not to believe that America is simply an affluent society in which the problem mm. of poverty and economic want has been solved. You know, it, it's the economic yeah. inequality has been building for so long. Uh, is the overwhelming reality for young people in America today and has been for many years. And uh, that's why people like Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez um, have such traction. It, it's not really very complicated. Um, mm, exactly. A lot of young people in America seem um, just relieved and, and and gratified that at least somebody is talking about the social realities they've been living for uh, for many years now. Uh, so the economism of the Sanders version of democratic socialism not only is very much distinct. Well, it's it's it, it's, it's distinct from other tendencies um, on the political left now um, because I think it is um, it is as you say a kind of class first um, a version of left politics, but uh, it it's different from the new left in the '60s. Sanders got his start in the late 60s, early 70s but you know at that time he was kind of an eccentric outlier within so the left well within the, 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 the new left, most of them did, were not peddling democratic socialism uh, of an economistic variety. Mm-hmm. Um, to the contrary, that was that you know Sanders was something of a throwback to the old left. Uh, and and you know he just had his lonely path that he followed with some success in Vermont <laughs> um, you know and so I think he was tolerated but viewed with some amusement uh, by others on the left in in the 70s uh, but but the wheel has turned
2: certainly yeah and, and like you said that seems to be a reflection of the just socio-economic realities yeah 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 but um but With regards to, like, you do have a chapter, towards the end of, um, from the politics of six of authenticity to the politics of six of identity. Like, what what kind of line do you track between these two?
1: Trace or between these two? Well, I mean, I think that the the young people in the 60s and 70s, whether they're white, black, Latino, or something else, people in the feminist movement and the gay movement, they were all concerned with... uh, Identity with the fulfillment of authenticity, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that that is not necessarily um, that does not necessarily equal or lead to the kind of rhetoric of identitarian politics that we might know today, but uh, uh, but that was a kind of um, sequence that that uh, that American politics and and social critique uh, followed. Uh, and 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 I think it was a fairly easy passage. Uh, I, I, what I tried to say in the conclusion of that book, I think was that um, the the politics of the new life were not necessarily an alternative to the emerging politics of identity identity, but they were, in fact, one form of what you could call identity politics of one particular social group
2: the identity politics of uh, white sort of middle class um, yeah. college-educated people yeah mm. Mm. That, that is interesting so I mean you wrote this book uh, sort of in the 90s and it, it's a very it's a very I mean it's a very fascinating book because it's, there's a theory there about the new left and then it's sort of but wristed by a lot of very interesting stories from uh, the the Texas context. And I think in publishing today, this are the kind of things that people are interested in, that in a kind of uh, nonfiction with a theory. But if you had written it today, um, would you have kept it the same, or would you have changed it in any way with the, the world? Because... You did say towards the end that it, it didn't seem like there would be a left, uh, a new left, a new new left, you know, coming. And uh, so, how would you, how would the the last twenty years have uh, changed the book, if at all?
1: Yeah, I, yeah, it's a, it's a really a great question, but I'm not sure I, I have an answer to it. Uh, I you know, uh, I think what I wrote at the end of the book was that. Uh, at some point, there would be another left movement, but it would not be what people expected because there's always a surprise in store mm-hmm. in, in future uh, rebellions. And I guess I was right.
0: Could you talk a little bit more on how your viewpoint has changed over the past 20 years with regards to the new left?
1: I, I, I guess I have mixed feelings. Sometimes I feel like I should have been a little bit harder on them than I was. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the other hand, um, uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I don't think that way. You know, um, I, I, I you know, there when I came along in the 90s, to me, their politics seemed very other, you know, it wasn't really where I had come from. Mm-hmm. And so its I still still feel that way. It was very much of its time, and, and I think it's important to understand that as part of its time and not to not to be um, uh, not to expect, necessarily to find heroes or inspiration there. I mean, the search for a usable past is always, past is always a temptation, but I think it's problematic because you can't just put yourself back in a different time. It was a response to specific circumstances. There was a kind of anti-systemic uh, uh, aspect to the new life that was very important. They were against the entire political system. Whereas today, there were reasons for that. You know, and, and, Today, you see the left trying to work inside the electoral system uh, by getting involved in the Democratic Party, and engaging in a struggle for power within that party. That's a very different setting. But uh, it's no good to say either that then in the 60s, people should have acted like they're acting now or that people now should act like people did in the 60s because, the, you know, these are, are responses in the different eras to very different circumstances. So that's, um, an, that- that's, that's an historian's answer. what would you say is the legacy of the new left well i mean i think its legacy was uh to show that that even at the height of american power and wealth uh there were people who said no uh to power and and who expressed their their dissent Uh, they can still provide an inspiration in in certain ways for people today um, but it was not a movement that left a lot of institutional legacies. And I don't think they were really focused on trying to do that. You know, some people expressed disappointment in them on that score. But I think uh, that expectation is probably based on a misunderstanding of the nature of the movement itself. So its legacy is, is, is a cultural one. Uh, and in some ways, it's an intellectual one rather than one of a conventional political sort.
0: Now, to round off the show, we're going to try something a little bit different. Uh, Toby has a poem to read.
2: Okay. Um, it's by Jim Newland, who was of the Southern West, Conference and the um, and in the Texas context of the New Left. And it seems to underline a lot of the things that we've been talking about here. So, uh, we've been apathetic, a silent generation, but the world is in revolution. And we are in the world freedom without equality, equality without freedom, inequality, social injustice, affluent society, mass culture, sex, masculine, feminine, changing roles, faith, sex, and love, the art of loving, SNCC, Martin Luther King, core, between man and man, the beat generation, the lonely crowd, growing up absurd, rational man, response, action, response, demonstration, response responsible revolution response revolution and response
1: yeah that takes that takes me back
2: Mm.
0: well thank you so much to uh both doug Rosnow and toby for uh joining me here today it's been an absolutely fascinating podcast um doug thank you so much for joining us Uh, it's been a real pleasure oh you're welcome
1: it's been my pleasure to be with you
0: and toby thank you as always thank you It's,
1: it's It's been a great pleasure to have you here.
0: Until next time, uh, we hope to have a new podcast again for you in the near future. Uh, from all to Impressions of America, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.